Welcome to the Wisdom of the Womb podcast, your home for mind, body, and soul wellness for women. My name is Stephanie Adler. I'm a certified nutrition consultant, birth doula, and women's hormone and fertility expert. I've supported hundreds of women in having healthy cycles, healthy babies, and building a balanced foundation in their bodies and minds to set them up for a limitless life. Now it's your turn. I believe a woman reaches her full potential when she trusts the innate wisdom of her body and that those women change the world. So if you're wanting to achieve hormone harmony, have boundless energy, optimize your fertility, live a holistically healthy life, and learn how to love and trust your body to become the well woman you know you are meant to be, you're in the right place. Join me for weekly wisdom on topics such as holistic hormone and gut health, fertility, mindfulness, birth, pregnancy, and beyond, and leave with actionable steps towards well womanhood. Thanks for pressing play today. I'm so excited for the magic we're going to create together. Let's dive in. Hello, podcast family. Oh my goodness. I am so excited about our guest today. I have been binging her book since having a baby and she has been so generous to grace us with her knowledge and her wisdom today on the podcast. So I'm so excited to introduce you all. Today we have Greer Kirschenbaum, who is a PhD in author, neuroscientist, doula, infant and family sleep specialist, and mother. She trained at the University of Toronto, Columbia University, New York University, and Yale University. Greer has a combined academic train combined her academic training with her experience as a doula and mother to lead the nurture revolution. Revolution, a woman, a movement to nurture our babies' brains to revolutionize mental health and impact larger systems in our world. I'm so excited to have you here today. I think the work that you're doing is truly life changing for everyone involved, right? Like the, the, the greater system, us as parents, our babies, our infants. Um, so, yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so wonderful to sort of have the book out been out for a couple months now and to really be getting this feedback from people, right? I'm getting messages all the time how impactful it is. And after spending a year or more <laughs> locked away writing a book, it's it's so wonderful to connect. Um so I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Totally. It's like birthing, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways it's like you it's a gestation period and you birth it and then you like wonder when you're out in the world like what now? And so like what a gift to have that come back. And I mean, what I you and I were kind of chatting about this before we clicked record while I was pumping <laughs> that <laughs> you know, for me what this book did is it gave the science behind what my you know, like the, the science that like my brain loves to nerd out on what my heart already knew. And I am so grateful for that because not necessarily, I think, you know, some people have an easier time following their heart, but especially with parenthood and especially with new parenthood, there's a lot of noise that clouds the heart and the mind and what's right. And how, how do you know if you're doing the right thing? And so I think that this is so critical for, us as parents in this modern world. And I'm really curious, like what made you get into this line of research? Like what made you be like, I want to study infants brains. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how you said that. Cause I think that's really sort of how I ended up writing the book. Um, so, so I was always interested in mental health, you know, since I was in high school, even I was sort of like focused on 
at that time wanted to be a medical doctor and, you know, sort of flirted with that path. Um, and I discovered neuroscience and just really, really was captivated by that. Um, and then as time went on, more and more research came out into how early life experience is shaping the brain to affect mental health, struggle, you know, the struggles that I was seeing all my friends and family and, you know, so many of us have, um, I, I, I saw a lot of hope there in that, in that research in those early years to, to see how impactful it could be. And I was really captivated. I was looking at some papers the other day, all my papers in my undergrad were all like, how does, how does experience form the auditory system? How does experience form the visual system? And, and over my career, all that, you know, research really interested me, but the mental health stuff and the emotional health stuff that was emerging over, you know, the 15, 20 years or so, um, that I was working on it. And it just, you know, I just see so much, like I said, so much opportunity and hope, um, to make real change, um, with that work. So yeah, it was kind of like something I was always interested in. I was also a really high needs baby and my mom, you know, did lots of nurturing, lots of long time breastfeeding, bed sharing, baby wearing, all that kind of stuff. Um, she was influenced by La Leche League back then. Um, and so I was always were, was told those stories. I really had so much empathy for babies too. So it kind of all came together. Wow. The years. It's so, and I mean, I think back then that was like even more revolutionary than it is today. Mm -hmm. because I mean, maybe it's social media that's like made some of these things more in front of people. Um, but I mean, that is a beautiful thing that your mom gifted you and now you're like passing it forward in this huge way. So explain to us, what is the nurture revolution? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the nurture revolution, I mean, I love what you said as well. It's essentially to like, you know, highlight the importance of nurture for babies and parents in those early years from zero to three years old um, to impact, you know, the people we're going to have on this planet. Right. And when we nurture babies, brains are shaped to be empathetic, compassionate, connected, caring, thinking, right. Forward looking, um, contemplative, you know, all of these things that I, I just think the world is missing in so many ways. Um, after so many decades of low nurturing, um, a nurture revolution is really, you know, what I think of it as like a collective of families and they're all, there's so many people coming forward in this revolution, which is so exciting. Um, you know, spending this deliberate time with their baby, you know, in relationship, this nurturing relationship in these first few years. And then, you know, I just imagine those babies are then going to grow up. They're going to be forming all the systems in our world, taking care of our humanity, taking care of our animals, the planet um, in a very different way than what we see now. I mean, I'm going to cry because I think it's so poignant. And I think today, especially like when we can look at I'll speak from, you know, like the, I I live in the United States. I'll speak from my experience of like being present in this society. I see so much of what is like, quote unquote, wrong. I mean, you know, maybe who am I to say what's wrong or right with our society, but like what I would say is wrong with our society coming from mental health 
issues yeah. and seeing people, you know, with so much lack of empathy, so much anxiety, so much self-doubt, so much angst that that then causes, you know, more teenagers than ever. I, I saw something crazy that it was something like, oh, I wish I could remember the exact statistic and I don't want to misquote it, but like an alarming number of teenagers having con contemplated suicide, how many kids have anxiety, kids that are on ADHD medications. Like, I mean, it is, it is an epidemic of mental health. Absolutely. And so revolutionary to be a parent, you know, who, you know, can confront that stuff, like live in that, you know, all those stressors that we've have on us, um, you know, and still to kind of do our best to nurture because it is so against the grain. It is so different than what's going on around us. Um, and just take, it takes a lot of focus and a lot of, you know, a lot of patience. work <laughs> completely so much patience. Um, but it is so worth it, right? It's really like a very, very big place of activism to nurture babies. And so let's, let's kind of break down, like, what does it mean to nurture? And in the context that you're talking about it, because I mean, I think that like, I know lots of parents, right? And while there are definitely some people who are born into parents who were like, I wasn't ready for this, or I didn't want this. The majority of the people that, you know, are in my life having children are choosing to have children and who deeply love their children. Right. Absolutely. And I don't think that anyone is like, I am not going to nurture my child or I am not going to, you know, I am not a nurturing parent. And so it gets a little bit like, or confusing when yeah. we're talking about nurture and it's like, well, what does she mean though? Because of course I'm a nurturing parent. So, so let's kind of define when we talk about nurture here, what exactly we're speaking to. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the definition I kind of mostly go back to is that it's a really conscious, both emotional and physical relationship with a baby where we're really curious about what's going on inside of that baby, what, what, what's happening in their stress system, what's happening with their feelings and emotions and thoughts. Um, and same with us as parents, we're, we're in tune with that and ourselves as well. And we're spending deliberate time connecting with our baby, um, you know, in the States where they're communicative. Um, some people don't even know that young babies can be right. So this is a big place of learning for many parents. Um, we're connecting with them and supporting their stress unconditionally. That's a huge one. Um, and the last area is in sleep, right? We're really supporting them again, their stress, their emotions, their internal world, daytime and nighttime as well. That's sort of like the general sense, right? I think the big umbrella kind of topics I talk about in my book are nurturing presence and nurtured empathy. This is sort of like the heart of nurturing parenting where, you know, with a nurturing presence, we are fully accepting our babies. You know, we see them as enough. We love them unconditionally. We love them and accept them regardless of what's going on inside of them, regardless of some of the behaviors that they do, right? We, we know that we can guide them. Um, and, and to have nurtured empathy, to really get behind their eyes. I think we're coming from, you know, the lower nurture places where we're really focus focused and fixated on behavior and we shame and reject certain behaviors. We don't try to understand them um, or we might reward and punish 
you know, behavior. It's all about the behavior. Nurtured parenting is a shift away from that to really be much more curious about what's going on inside of a baby and how we can support and connect with Mm. the baby. So yummy. Yeah. And I mean, I took some of the practices in your book, you know, when you're like, okay, now how to nurture. And again, it's one of those things where when I got to that chapter, I almost was like, I don't know if I need to read this chapter. I know how to nurture my baby. And because we do, we all have this inherent guide, right. Of how to connect with our baby. Um, and I loved some of your practical applications because it really, I think helps train our brain away from some of those behavior based ideas that have just been seeped into us through media, through other people that we know who've had, you know, babies through what we hear stories about as us as babies, et cetera. And so I love the, like, I see you crying. I think you're feeling scared. Like here's what your need is. And like, I'm going to meet it and just being able to practice that. So like identifying the behavior and then going to the feeling underneath the behavior. And then what is that need? I think it's just such a beautiful practice. And like, you know, I've taught it to my husband and like, he's using it. And I just think it's a really great way to help us shift from that behavior to feeling state. Completely. My son's five now and I'm still practicing. (laughs) I'm still practicing, right? I practice it with my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, I practice it with all my relationships. It's, it's so important. And I think it's also important for parents to know that it's going to be, it's like a practice, a continuous practice. Those sort of low nurture ideas are so deep in our psyche. Um, If we're not in that place of some awareness and consciousness, that's kind of the, you know, the default mode that many of us go into. Right. I found you on social media through one of the posts around like the myth versus the, you know, like the myth busting posts that you do that I'm just obsessed with them. I think they're great. And I'm curious. And that actually taught me a lot about like, what are some of these low nurture behaviors? But for people who are listening, who maybe like this is their first time being exposed to you one, go find her on social media and binge her content and also get this book. But like, let's just briefly go over, like when we say low nurture, like what kind of behavior, like what kind of ideas are we talking about here? Yeah. It's, it's so amazing spending so much time, like in my nurture, nurture bubble with all the people I work with and everything Um, to hear these low, these low nurture statements that are just so common. Right. I work with parents too. And parents will say, Oh, my mom said this. My aunt said this. I'm getting, people are sending me articles. They're so worried about me that I'm nurturing my baby. Uh, because again, these are really deeply ingrained myths and and ideas. And so the biggest one is spoiling. It is wild. It is wild to me that with all the knowledge that we have now, all of the communication and, you know, really understanding babies in a new way that this is still around. But people, you know, we'll talk about spoiling babies. You know, if you're holding the baby too much, don't do that. You're spoiling them. They'll want to be held all the time. You're causing them to need the holding. You're causing them to cry when you respond to all the cries. Um, and it's it's really not true, right? Even on like the most surface level, when we look at, you know, studies that look at babies who have parents and caregivers who are really high response, highly responsive, you know, going to attend to the cry quickly, holding a lot, those babies cry like 50% less. <laughs> Then, then I believe baby. it. I see it with my baby. Yeah. It, and so, so it's just like, 
outright not true. Um, but but there is this like obsession in our low nurture culture of, you know, you cannot give a baby too much attention or they are going to grow up needy, dependent, clingy, maybe anxious, uh, spoiled, you know, all these things. Um, and that really gets to parents, right? We really have to bust that. Um, and and really the opposite is true. The complete opposite is true. When we are very attentive to baby's needs, listening to them, their communication, giving them lots of touch day and night, they grow up to, you know, be, just be the opposite of all those things. They grow up to be more independent, but still need people because that's healthy, right? Right. Yeah. Um, we don't want to raise people to like, I always say that, like, I don't want any human on earth to grow up thinking when I'm sad or upset or scared or fearful, I should go run into a corner and cry alone. That's not a healthy way to handle stress. Like we are social species. Like when we have problems like that, I would wish for every human on earth to have at least one trusted person to go to, you know, to hold space for them and their emotions and stress. Like that's, Sure. That's healthy, right? Um, so yeah, so when we give nurture independent, you know, healthy emotions, healthy expression of emotions, healthy relationships, work, you know, all the things. Um, so yeah, the spoiling is huge, huge, huge. Um, and then the other giant one I think is related to sleep, right? Teaching sleep, sleep training, um, leaving babies to like learn self-regulation at these very young ages uh, is a huge myth. And again, it's something that our low nurture culture is obsessed with. Yeah. And, and um, that is just false too. Yeah. I, it's so interesting. The, and I mean, I, I definitely want us to talk about sleep because I feel like it's the big elephant in the room. You know, it's one of those things where, we never want to judge someone else's parenting. And it almost has like become to this place though, in like, I think our social media, like world where like, it's, you're almost like shamed for saying that something is good for something. Like, you know, it's like almost like hard to talk about the benefits of breastfeeding without being like, well, not everyone can breastfeed, you know, for example. And I feel like with sleep, it gets very touchy, but it's an interesting thing because while I was pregnant, I mean, so many people were just projecting their sleep stuff onto, you know, like you have to get this book 12 hours by 12 weeks. You have to work with this person. You know, the sleep training is hard, but you got to do it. Like it was so interesting to me. And we, my partner and I had very like already knew we were going to bed share already like knew we weren't going to sleep train because of not only the way we felt, but like research we had done on our own. And, you know, at the same time, like had to receive all of this feedback without being like, just be like, thanks. <laughs> you know, like yeah. thanks. we're not going to use it, but because I think it's so hard to talk about. So I definitely want to talk about sleep. Um, but really quick, I also just want to touch on something you said about how like we are social beings. And I hope that no adult deals with that alone. And something that you wrote and I loved, it's like, or I think that this was in your book where like, what, if we expected babies or like, if we expected adults to do the things that babies do, like, I like sleeping with another human. Like I love cuddling up with my partner. I like when I'm sad, I want a hug. 
Like, and that's like a normal adult healthy reaction. And like, so it's so interesting how we like, don't expect babies to need or want the same thing and like that to not be okay. Absolutely. They're just, we treat, you know, this, the, I'd say low nurture society, these ideas, right. Cause they're not again, never blaming a parent, right. These are things that we have all absorbed and it's, you know, assumed by most parents in many cult, like many places around the world that like, this is what we do. This is the best way to, you know, help a baby. And so everyone who does these things, it's well-meaning of course, but um, it is unbelievable. I, th- I lost my train of thought. What were, what were we talking about? Like we, we wouldn't expect ourselves yeah. or our, like, you know, like we sometimes eat for comfort, right? So like, yeah. When I've had a bad day and I want like a bowl of matzo ball soup, does that make me like bad for wanting that? No. But like, if the baby wants to nurse for comfort, that's suddenly a problem. Like it's so bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly like, it's such a good point. Like we really treat babies and children, you know, with, there's a word for it, childism, right. Or, um, there's others too that we treat them like no one else. If we, if we replace the word baby with you know any other stage of life it would be scary right to say you know oh my grandmother's living with us she can't use her arms and legs or get out of bed or go to the bathroom herself or feed herself or have drinks but we close the door at 7 p.m and no matter how much she screams and yells we don't answer her until seven in the morning yeah right that's horrific it like makes me sick thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, it's hard to say, but but that's okay for babies in our society, right? So it's again, yeah, it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's let's like talk about the elephant in the room, the sleep. Um I mean, I th- I'm curious what you think. I think everyone is obsessed with it because I think it's the thing that we're most afraid of. Yeah. Like I think sleep deprivation is intense and therefore we're all really afraid of it. And so we're all like really obsessed with it. I mean, the number one thing that people ask me having a new baby is how are you sleeping? Mm. Everyone's obsessed with it. And I'm curious, like, so that's kind of my feeling about how we got here is because people are just like, we need sleep. But I, I believe that there is another path towards all of us sleeping. It's just less profitable and less, uh, maybe desirable, but arguably intuitive. I don't know. Um, but I'm kind of curious from like your obviously expert opinion, um, or what you see in your practice, what, what's going on here with the sleep. So, I mean, the origins of the way we look at infant sleep come from in North America, at least come from, um, some pediatricians who wrote books about spoiling, you know, spoiling babies. Emmett Holt, I believe in 1910, his book said, you know, all kinds of horrific things for babies, but, you know, among them was the origin of cry it out, right? Put them in the room, shut the door, let them cry it out. And in a couple of days, they'll stop crying. Right. And there's been many iterations of it. So, it's interesting to think about how that happened, right? Cause that would have taken over the intuition probably in that time of only mothers who were taking care of babies and sort of 
put that, you know, put into the hands of experts to say, you know what, we know what's better. Your doctor's going to tell you what to do. And I think that started, you know, generations of passing down that behavior, passing down that probably trauma in a lot of cases that happened to, to mothers and, um, and probably other parents as time went on around it. And I think it's almost like hazing now. Right. Mm, it's like it, so that. Yes. Yeah. It has to be worth it. It was so awful for me. It has to be worth it because I can't, you know, you can't have cognitive dissonance with, you know, totally. with that. And, and then you have to do it because I did it. If you do it, then that means it's okay. And all right. And, you know, yeah. um, somewhat, you know, yeah, not harmful or something or, or not, or it wasn't as bad. Right. I mean, I think that it, that comes from it and it is really fear-based, right. It is, you know, put out there by lots of people making thousands of dollars on sleep packages and um, yeah, it's really just everywhere. And it is fear-based. It is fear-based about, you know, you'll never sleep. Your baby will never sleep. Your baby's brain won't develop properly if they're not sleep trained, you know, they'll never sleep. And then, and again, the opposite is true, right? When we do sleep training, there's not enough research on this yet, but I see hundreds of people, you know, over, over the time I've been working, many people who have insomnia, fears of the fears of the night, all these kinds of sleep issues were sleep trained and people who were not love their sleep, find sleep safe, comfortable, peaceful. Um, so when we do nurture our baby sleep, when we support it as it develops, you know, that is definitely helping their, their brain develop in an optimal way. Um, but it's also giving them that gift of lifelong sleep. And when we have that gift of lifelong sleep, that's, you know, necessary for mental health. We need to have good sleep for mental health. That's like, could be a vicious cycle, you know, negative or positive. Um, and and, and then all of the other health of our body also depends on, on having good sleep, right? So it's in just another way of building that in those early years for babies. I mean, when I'm working with women on fertility and hormone balance and all of that, one of the first things we talk about is sleep. It is so important for our nervous system, for our hormonal system, our gut. I mean, like everything depends on being able to properly restore in that way. And yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it's just so interesting to me I, I don't know. My husband and I are in a little bit of disagreement about it. He like thinks that not as many people sleep train as I do. Like, and he is not on social media. So like, so he is just like only engaging with the people around us, you know? Um, and I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think it's probably maybe 50, 50 or something of the people that we know, but okay. he was talking to like one of our friends about it. And like, they didn't even know what sleep training was. Oh, and he cool. was like, and I was like, that's and, and then he, the guy was like, Oh, you mean like where you let them cry? Like, yeah, no, we didn't do that. And it was like, you know, so I thought that that was like a good sign for sure. But so my husband's like in this camp where he's like, Stephanie, I think you're overestimating. <laughs> like not that many people sleep train. And I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm the one seeing like every other reel that's presented to me is like from a sleep person who's like, yeah. But you're, you know, this is how you like train them to sleep. Well, anyways, I digress, but where was it? now? I lost my train of thought where I was going. With that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, oh, don't know what, what the numbers are. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. But 
so many of the people that I know personally who have sleep trained when they talk about it, it's Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. Like one of the women, I mean, and they're, it honestly surprised me a little bit based on like just general parenting philosophy. But then they mentioned to us that when they sleep trained, she was like, we had to hire someone to come to our house. And I slept with noise canceling headphones because it was like too upsetting for me to listen to. And then, you know, someone else who was like, I had to leave the house, you know, and my husband had to do it. And it was just like, it's interesting to me. I was like, if your body is having such a strong reaction to something like that, why aren't we trusting that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of curious if we can go into the science a little bit of like what actually happens when we're sleep training for both baby. And if we can a little bit for mom too. That's a really good point. And I've heard those very, you know, same reflections, um, from people. Yeah. I think we are conditioned from like in this, again, low nurture style, you know, of, you know, parenting and being raised by the world, um, to be really disconnected from our bodies. I'm sure you see that with people that you work with. Um, we are, cut off, right? We're kind of in our cerebral cognitive space and we are not attuning to the messages and feelings, body sensations that we have. And, you know, we often need to develop that to trust that intuition and parenting is a really good time to do that. It for sure is. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it can be really, really painful, right. For parents to do this. Um, they often have to leave or like you said, you know, go to somewhere quiet in the house where they can't hear. That's the advice that a lot of people get. They also get mantras to say like, my baby needs this. My baby needs this. They're going to, they're going to cry in their life. That's okay. Um, and so, so yes, they have, they have to be very prepared by a sleep, you know, training kind of paradigm to, to do it. So, you know, let's start with the parent. So we know when we become mothers, um, in pregnancy or if we're pregnant, so some people are pregnant who, you know, are surrogates and adoption, all that kind of stuff too. Um, our brains start to change dramatically, um, as we turn into parents. So for, for women, it's called matrescence and for, for men, it's called patrescence and it's, a huge reorganization of the brain and many of the, the, you know, the main places that change are the ones that help us take care of our babies and detect our baby's needs. So our auditory cortex changes. So the part of our brain that processes hearing changes. So it's especially attuned to crying. Mm. And I'm not, you might be experiencing this right now with your baby. Um, Do you ever have phantom cries, hear phantom cries in the shower and things like that? Totally. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Like he'll like, he'll like be at my mother-in-law's two doors down and I'm like, is he crying? (laughs) Yeah. So common. And it's because our brain is, you know, both the, our amygdala, which is looking for threats, you know, for, to our baby and ourselves that's heightened. And then that, that auditory cortex is heightened looking for cries. So it might hear a squeak of the pipes and, you know, mm-hmm. really be like, Oh, is that a cry? You know, it's looking for it. Right. Our attentional focus is very interesting 
Um, and you know, those studies are so interesting. We, we can't focus our attention on everything in our world. So we have these sort of attentional spotlights and when we become parents, a baby is the, is the focus, right? So that's a big one. So you imagine during sleep training, when your baby is crying, that auditory cortex is sending you those messages. Like this is something we need to pay attention to. We need to, you know, go to the baby. Our amygdala, that fear center is sort of saying, my baby's under threat, like mm-hmm. act on this, mobilize your body, go get your baby. So, you know, the deepest circuitry in our brain is, is attuning, you know, to that cry from our baby. And when we're ignoring those cries, um, you know, that's going to put ourselves, you know, into a state of extreme stress, really, really heightened, possibly, you know, all the way through fight and flight to freeze and collapse and shut down because it's extremely stressful. Um, another part of our brain that changes is our insula, which is um, how we process theory of mind, where we can intuit what others are thinking inside from their, oh, cool. yeah from their vocalizations or facial expressions. Um, so we can really read our babies. We can kind of try to have a better window inside of what's going on inside of them. And That's so you the, imagine- are you tired or do you need to poop? Like I'm looking at your face and like really figuring that out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so all of those are heightened right during that time. And so, like I said, that will start to develop in a mother, a pregnant person, during pregnancy and, you know, continue to develop as the baby grows for fathers or, you know, secondary parents that starts to develop within the first sort of 12 to 14 weeks after the baby is born. So for both, for all kinds of parents, the amount of contact with the baby after birth is going to make those areas develop even more might make us more attuned to our babies, more nurturing to our babies. So it's important for fathers and other parents to be holding their babies and, you know, taking care of them a lot as well to develop their brains. So you imagine if sleep training is done at some time, you know, typically four months or six months, um, those parents are also going to be feeling compelled, right? Right. To go to the baby as well. Um, then, you know, the other part we didn't mention, sometimes there's other siblings in the home. Mm. And what is that teaching, you know, an older I sibling? I never thought about that. And now I feel like goosebumps, but like not in a good goosebump way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very hard on others. Yeah, completely. So, yes. And then for the baby... Babies are really programmed for survival when they're born, right? They've got their survival brain is working really well to help them breathe and have their heart beating and communicate. And when they, you know, are under threat, that that part of their brain works and they can signal for help. They can, you know, detect a threat, which for a baby is being alone. You imagine we evolved not in our modern world, we evolved, you know, in hunter gatherer societies, um, where if a baby was left alone, that would be very dangerous, right? Like anyone, a predator, anything could get a baby on their own. So crying is a way for them to signal, Hey, I'm alone. I need, you know, I'm, I'm under threat right now. Um, and so, so that babies do that, but again, 
you know, their brains are really underdeveloped. They're not able to go from that state of high stress. Um, I'm really scared. I have a threat here to a regulated and calm state on their own. They need it. They need input for that. And so what happens is um, they'll go into a fight or flight state of crying, thrashing around, you know, all kinds of things. And then the next stress state after that is a freeze state. So withdrawn, collapsed and, and sleep, right? So it looks like they've fallen asleep. They have fallen asleep, but it wasn't through a parasympathetic restful pathway where they would with a parent or a caregiver. Um, but it was through a, a, a pathway of, of collapse and sort of shut down. Um, incredibly stressful and fearful for babies, right? And you imagine as well, that makes sense in our hunter-gatherer times when, you know, if a baby did cry and signal and no one came, they were probably more likely to survive if they did stop. Right. right? Yeah, don't just like disassociate and go to sleep. I mean, the analogy that you give in your book of the alarm, the gas pedal and the brake, I've used that to explain so many different times to different people. Like, I love that. I think that's so amazing. I like need the refresher on like what parts of the brain are what, but I just, am always saying, you know, like there's, we have the alarm, like I'm in stress. And then we have like the gas pedal, like, okay, let's respond to the stress, the fight, flight, freeze, et cetera. But they're missing the break. Like they, they, that doesn't develop the ability to self-soothe and they need to borrow are us by giving them, you know, what you call your oxytocin cascade, or I think that's what you call it. Right. Um, to, which makes so much sense. It's like, duh, which is like, why, when, when you go and pick up a baby that's crying and they just like ah, into you, you know, like you can feel that exhale and that sigh. And they just like, it's like, you can tell that they're getting that. And it's, um, it, it is like, I mean, I just think so sad how many people have been told that like they can, that a baby is self-soothing because like they can just like suck on their pacifier and go to sleep. Like maybe, but probably not based on the science. And um, I think mm-hmm. we really get to speak for babies here um, when we can look at the brain and look at the science and say like, that's actually not what's happening. Absolutely. I was thinking of, you just made me think of, um, what you said about your husband, the people who don't know about sleep training, some, you know, there is a huge spectrum of baby sleep. And I think the people who don't know about sleep training have babies who just like sleep so well, right. (laughs) That they're just not bothered. They're like, you know, either they're sleeping really long stretches or they're getting up not too bothered and just needing a little bit of input to go fought back to sleep. And their parents are like, yeah, this is great. Like no big deal. Right. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's very wakeful babies, babies who have other issues that can influence their sleep too. Um, and those are probably more, you know, those families are probably looking for answers more as well. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's a huge, huge, huge range. That's important for people to know as well. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'll just speak from my own experience right now. I generally think that Ohai sleeps pretty well. We also bed chair with him, which I think makes a huge difference because like getting him to go to sleep during the day, we, 
like have to walk him around and I sing to him and I, you know, do all the things to help him fall asleep. I sometimes nurse him to sleep during the day, but in the evenings, it's very much like, you know, I think we're set up in a way where he's not crying by the time I get to him because he's so close to me that I just feel him basically like knocking being like, Hey, I'm up, you know, (laughs) he's like tapping. And then, you know, I, I nurse him usually is what he needs. Sometimes it's like gas or something. And then we go back to sleep. We don't have to get out of bed. So I think we're set up in a way where it it is easier on all of us. Um, and I know that some people are not comfortable with that. Uh, for us, that's like what really works. And I'm so grateful for that. And I also, I, I don't know, we haven't tried independent sleep with him. I'm not interested in trying it yet. Uh, okay. but I don't, and I don't know what he would be like if, if that was what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can see like how, if sleep is something that's really hard, it becomes all consuming okay. And what I want to offer people from what I've read from you and other research that I've done and, and even in my brief experience is like some of these other things that we've been told are bad are maybe actually the right solution for the whole family, right? Like maybe it is co-sleeping, maybe it is nursing to sleep, which like so many people, even my midwife who I love and is like so crunchy and amazing was like, don't nurse to sleep. Cause then they'll always want it, you know, which is just like, so interesting to me. Like I had a home birth, like it's yeah. like fascinating, you know? And so, um, like if you are listening to this and you're like, okay, well, this sounds like devastating. And like, what do I do? Because I'm not s- sleeping, like offering that there are definitely people out there that can help you in a way that doesn't involve having to sleep train your baby. Absolutely. There's so many different sleep environments. There's so many ways, you know, I work with a lot of people sleep a lot. It's funny. I, my new analogy is that like, I think that sleep is like a river, like it kind of like it flows, right. Mm -hmm. Our society has just like thrown these boulders in of like your baby has to sleep in a really uncomfortable place put your baby in the dark for all their naps, put your baby on a schedule for eating and sleeping. And we have to just like take out, you know, or, or your baby has a health issue that's influencing the sleep, right. That you're not getting the attention that you deserve for that. And, you know, I imagine like the practice I do with people is like just taking these out. Mm. So the flow, cause like sleep, babies know how to sleep. There's just a lot of things that are all, totalize and very weird and part of the sleep training culture that get you know mixed in for people like don't feed to sleep don't you know all those things um that you know we can remove them and sleep can be so much easier so much easier yeah Feeding, feeding to sleep is like my superpower. Like, I'm just like, oh my God, thank God we can do this. (laughs) I was so tired with myself every time I did I was like I couldn't get up. Like I couldn't get up and like walk around and rock him to sleep or, you know, I, yes, was also so grateful for that. I was too. Yeah. I remember when we, when my midwife said that to us, we, my husband and I were like, like, that's what we've been doing this whole time. And, and then we like reflected on it and we were like, I think we're going to keep doing that. And we feel okay about that. But yeah, I mean, it definitely like, it's uh, the other day though. I actually do want to share this anecdote because I thought it was really funny. Like, so my son has been doing this thing where he gets like 
it's like he knows how to like at after he's done eating like in one session like how to just like flutter suck and just like be there for comfort but I think he struggles maybe it's my letdown I'm not sure but I think he struggles to like nurse for comfort to start so like he'll act like he wants it you know but then he'll get on and get like really fussy and pull off and pull and just like act really funny and I think it's because he's actually full but he wants to be there but he doesn't know how to like not taking the milk while he's there. Yeah. And so the other night he had like nursed kind of late and it wasn't ready for him. Anyways, we were like kind of on a weird, you know, schedule for him to nurse to sleep, which is how we typically get him to sleep. And so he was like trying and crying and it was like very confusing. So I actually put the pacifier, which is like the ninny. So it's like the breastfeeding kind of one like in, and then I like put my, like shoved my boob, like up next to the pacifier (laughs) in his face. And he was able to suck on that because he wasn't getting the milk and then he went to sleep like that and I thought it was so I was cracking up I was like he wants to nurse to bed but he doesn't know how to do it without taking the milk and he's full and so we like made this like funny little (laughs) because I tried just giving him the pacifier and he didn't want it like he needed my boob right up in his face and it really just illuminated for me like there's so much more to feeding to sleep. Like it is like the skin to skin, the contact, et cetera. Um, and it was, it was a funny also, thing. That's a great really story cool. to see like how strong your intuition is, right? You like knew exactly what he wanted. <laughs> Which is so cute watching him like nurse himself to sleep without like actually nursing. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay. There was one other thing I really wanted to ask you about. And then I, I mean, I could literally talk to you all day and I'm just in love with your research and really anyone will obviously link to everything in the show notes, but y'all, this is like a book that you should give every parent who's has a baby already people who are pregnant. I mean, I just think it is an amazing gift and it's something I'm going to be starting to give to my clients. Um, I'm really excited about it. The one thing that I want to ask you about, is like a total personal thing. I, so my son doesn't love the car. Yeah. And when I am sitting in the back with him and my husband's driving, like he sometimes does fine. And sometimes he still freaks out, but at least as much as I like, can't hold him, I know he can see me. I know like I can be touching him. It's not perfect, but it's like, it's still very upsetting, but like, okay. I've like sort of developed this like fear of driving alone with him. If it's going to be more than 10 minutes, because like, I get so upset at how upset he gets that I end up pulling over a bunch. And it's just like, a mess. And since reading this book, I also have like, it's like kind of, um, made me even more afraid of it because I'm like, he doesn't know why I can't come to him and he can't, you know, my thing and I'm talking. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, what is your advice for when we have situations like being in the car or for example, like my son had a tongue tie that we got revised and like the stretches afterwards, like it was so upsetting to like be part of that. And of course the whole time I'm talking to him saying, we love you. We're doing this because we think this is what's best for you, et cetera. But like from the perspective of the research and your experience, like what do we do in these situations where like, it's either just not an option for us to hold the baby or we're like, maybe there is something that is not going to be comfortable for them. That is necessary. Yeah, it really is. I mean, my son, though, the car, I had the exact oh. same experience. Um, so I had this, you know, same kind of thing happening. So I think there's a lot of different questions. So I think the first one is, you know, are we going to put our babies in these situations? you know, like the car. 
tongue tie sounds like it was a beautiful, you know, way to handle it and support him through it because our babies do need to feel stressed. Sometimes life is stressful. Right. And I don't think having a mom and, and or dad trapped at home without socializing, without going for walks, without going to the store, you know, that's not going to be, you know, healthy for the whole family, right. To, to be doing that. Um, so it really is always a balance. And so, you know, some things that help. Yes. If you can sit in the back, that's great. Bring some toys. I would give my son a bottle sometimes, um, in the back seat, and he would, yeah, he would, that would help sometimes he never took a pacifier. Um, but yeah, so, and if you can't, if it's you alone, what I would do and our strategy is time at least one of them around when they might fall asleep, like, like a really high chance when they're going to fall asleep. So if I was going, I used to take my son to the zoo a lot in LA. And so I would like, you know, try to make the plan. So I would drive to the zoo. I think it was like 20 or 25 minutes when he'd be sleeping you know, spend time there and he would be upset when we came home very often, mm. right? You know, for 20 minutes, it's a really long time. So yeah. stopping every once in a while when it's safe is great. Um, music can help. I used to sing Baby Beluga. <laughs> I used to sing um, some other like kind of like cheery songs um, and that would help too. He would, you know, cause, cause he knew I was there in like a, you know, pretty powerful way. If I stopped singing, then he would cry again, but there were also times where he just, he would cry for that whole, whole time, right. Whether or not. And so I think there's a difference between that and sleep training, you know, or, you know, other deliberate, like leaving babies to cry on their own because you're really have that intention of support, right? So you know, you know, every once in a while being like, I'm right here. I know that this is like, you're scared. It's hard, you know, really supporting yeah. with your voice can be helpful. Oh, another tip is you can take a picture of your face, like print it out on like a printer sized piece of paper and put it there. That's um, brilliant. I love that. A bit there. Uh, that does help. Not all babies, but that helps for some babies too. Okay. Um, and then if you can get the mirror eventually. Yeah, I do have the mirror. I just don't know if I can see now. him, but I don't know if you can see me. Yeah. Oh, it's a little now. So yeah, try a picture of you as well. That can help too. Um, it's really just giving them as many cues as they, you know, as possible. But you know, even if all of those things don't work, at the end of the day, they're crying for a finite amount of time, knowing that you're there the whole time. They can smell you, they can hear you. And and knowing that like that's 20 minutes out of 24 hours where they are supported at least a little bit to know that you're there. The brain, the way that the brain kind of gets shaped is by repeated experiences, right? Repeated and prolonged experiences. Right. And so, um, you know, we think that would be, you know, a, a smaller fraction of the day also like weighed out with the benefits of like, Oh, you get to go to the zoo. You get to go look and, go to music class, you get to go and, you know, do all these things. And so do you as, as mom, um, it kind of balances it out. So the difference with that and like a sort of a sleep training kind of thing is that sleep training lasts at least, you know, 50 or 60% of the day. Wow. Versus like, I don't know what 20 minutes is in 24 hours or an hour is in 24 hours, right? One 24th of the day. Right. So, so does that kind of, 
help? It does. Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, there's going to be stress. Like, like we can't protect our children as much as we want to from all stressors. Um, and not that, and that that's probably not even good for them. Right. Like, because we don't want to do anything since becoming a parent, life is stressful. Like there are going to be things that like, you have to learn to, to like deal with, but wanting to support the healthy way to deal with stress. And yeah, I mean, that makes me feel better. Cause that's all the things I was doing with him. Hi baby. I know you're here sometimes pulling over, you know, things like that, but yeah. it is wild just how much we feel it. And, um, and you're right though. I think that they can feel us too, that like we're there. The attention is there. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't. <laughs> yes. Completely. Um, I wish we had good, a good study on it. That would be an amazing study, right? To really know how much it's buffering, right? Because we know, you know, when they're uncomfortable and, you know, stressed, when we hold them and they're crying, we actually know that that's buffering their stress quite a bit. And they're not actually experiencing really high stress. Um, in the that's car cool. seat situation, I would be very curious to know what that looked like. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to know what it's like normal. And then also with the picture in front of them, <laughs> like, let's see, like, do, do, like, even if they're crying, but they can see your face. Is that helpful? <laughs> exactly. And the singing too. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. And also know that they grow out of it. They do grow out of it. Another tip is the bucket seats are a little bit more curved than the, the seats that don't, that, that don't get removed. The ones that sort of grow with them. Okay. And the baby has reflux, they'll be more comfortable in, I can't remember what they're called right now, but the not bucket seat, like the, um, the one that grows with them, one that grows with them, right? The all angels one. I have no idea. I mean, I know what the brand is, but I don't know if it's, I think we can take it out. So it must be a bucket seat. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So if there is reflux, that could be another way as well, but they do grow out of it. They do. Oh. Well, thank you so much, Gur. I'm curious if there's anything you want to close with for our community. You know, a lot of the women in this community are either new parents or, you know, wanting to become moms and are on that journey or, you know, maybe have young kids. I think that's like usually comprehensive of where a lot of this community is at. And if there's just anything you want to offer them as they impart on this journey of matrescence. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the thing I want people to know is just how incredible this opportunity is these zero to three years, you know, and throughout pregnancy too, for both our babies and for us to transform. And there is a way of going through it. That's like I said, very logical, very cognitive. And, and that way is not going to be you know, bringing your baby or you the benefits um, of leaning, really leaning into nurture for mm. our baby and for ourselves. So I just, yeah, I just would love everyone to at least have informed consent, you know, in this world to say, you know, there are, you know, essentially two paths and they are strikingly different. And when we choose this nurturing path, it's, you know, just beautiful and cozy and loving and and wonderful and also very hard in the, all the in all the, the biggest ways um but so so worth it for our babies and really really worth it for us too and the world and the world yeah and we can do hard things and so like let that be 
a lesson that we teach ourselves and our children by example. Completely. And you know what? The one thing I always say that I didn't say today is parenting is hard on both on both of those paths. It's hard on both of them. You're going to be tired on both of them because not none of us really have great community supporting us. And and if we can choose the one that's going to, you know, also bring some beautiful benefits to, you know, to our collective and to our, our family. Um, I also think that that is very, very worth it. I couldn't agree with you more. Oh, yeah. So juicy. We didn't even touch on like all of the parenting brain changes. And so like, if you are listening to this and are interested in this for your baby, but also for yourself, another reason to check out the book, where can people find you, my love? And, uh, yeah. yeah. Any offerings? Uh, I'm on Instagram, um, nurture neuroscience parenting. Um, I've links to my website there and I'm going to be offering workshops throughout this year and just growing more and more opportunities, um, to help educate and support parents. I love it. We will link to all of the above in the show notes. So go check it out and join the nurture revolution with us. Yay. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me.